If you have a Bible, take it and turn to Genesis 45, first book of the Bible, Genesis 45. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on that back table where uh, Ken's at. I'll be happy to let you borrow one, or even if you need one, happy to give you one. But Genesis 45, and we'll be in verses 1 through 15 this morning. If you've not been with us, or maybe if you just need a quick refresher, um, let me talk to you about where we've been in the book of Genesis, and specifically in the story of Joseph recently. So Joseph is one of of 12 brothers, the sons of Jacob, um, by four different women. That's a whole other story. Uh, But he was sold into slavery by his ten older brothers, where he, through God's sovereignty, is falsely accused, he's forgotten, and then recently we saw that he is exalted to the second-in-command over all of Egypt after interpreting some of Pharaoh's dreams. Those dreams were given by God, and they predicted a, a period of seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine in Egypt and in the surrounding nations. And Joseph, through interpreting those dreams and giving wisdom to Pharaoh, instructs him about how to, to store up grain during these seven years of plenty so that when the famine hits, Egypt and the surrounding nations would be able to survive. So where we're at in the story is that these seven good years have elapsed and we're about two years into these seven years of famine. And, and, and Joseph has become the savior, not just of Egypt, but of all the surrounding nations who are facing famine and are coming to Egypt and being sent to Joseph, and Joseph is giving them grain. Now, at the beginning of the, the seven years of famine, Joseph's brothers, these same ones that had sold him into slavery, now come to Egypt to buy grain. And they're buying it from their brother Joseph that they had sold into slavery. But they do not recognize him when they show up. Twenty years older, looking like an Egyptian ruler, they don't understand who he is. But he knows who they are. And so for the past three chapters, we've watched Joseph test his brothers, focusing on, uh, on their honesty and their compassion. Have these men changed? And the final part and the most difficult part of this test is that Joseph takes his silver cup and he plants it in his youngest brother's um, bag. And the, the, the ruler of Joseph house, Joseph's house comes upon the brothers and accuses them of stealing this cup. And Benjamin is the one that is found with the cup. And so they are taken uh, back to Egypt. And Joseph is going to keep Benjamin as his slave. We ended last week with Judah. Judah is the fourth brother who had risen to this place of leadership amongst his brothers. And he gives this passionate speech, speech where he offers to give himself to take his brother's punishment for the sake of their father Jacob who would have died at the absence of his youngest son. And so after Judah gives this passionate plea where he says, take my life, make me a servant instead of my brother Benjamin, we're faced with the question, what is Joseph going to do? How will he respond? Now many of us know the story, and so we sort of know how Joseph is going to respond but if we didn't know the ending, having seen the, the reaction of these brothers, having heard Joseph's uh, appeal what, or, or, or Judah's appeal, we would wonder, what is Joseph going to do? Is he going to show mercy or not? Let's just get right into it and see what happens in Genesis 45. And I want to read verses 1 through 15. 
After Judah's speech, we read this. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out for me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over the land of Egypt. Hurry and, and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, and there, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. What an amazing scene. In many ways, this is the climax of the entire narrative. This is what we've been pushing towards since chapter 37. You might be tempted to think it's when Joseph rises to power in Egypt, but no, it's here when he meets his brothers again and forgives them. The chapters that follow then show how Joseph's forgiveness sort of plays out in in their lives in the ensuing years up until Joseph's death. But as we look at this, we could say that, that things could have gone very differently, couldn't they? What if Genesis 45 read like this? I just made this up. Okay. Then Joseph could control his anger no longer. He cried out in the ca- to, he cried out, bring in the captain of Pharaoh's army. So the captain came in and all Egypt and Pharaoh's household heard the rage of Joseph. He said to his brothers, I am Joseph, your brother who you sold into slavery. And his brothers fell to the ground and begged for mercy. But Joseph cried out, silence. I have dealt with your presence long enough. Take these men to the prison, all except my brother Benjamin. They will pay for what they have done, and they will know the grief that they have put me through. You men sent me to this place, a place where I was forgotten and falsely accused. You sent me here to die, but I have risen to power, and now you will know what justice is. So his ten brothers were sent to the prison, and Joseph reigned over Egypt with his brother Benjamin at his side and his father and his household. But all of his brothers died in prison. Sounds like a Greek tragedy or something, doesn't it? I mean, that's, that's almost what we would expect to happen here. It's almost what seems right. Why is this not what happened? Why did Joseph forgive his brothers and then seek reconciliation with them instead of punishing them and holding them accountable for what they had done? 
Why does it why does it happen like this? We might say in answer to that, you might look at chapters 42 through 44 and say that it was because they passed these tests that Joseph had given. So they had shown that they had changed, that they were no longer ruthless liars, but they were honest and compassionate men who had been convicted and, and broken by their sin. And that seems to be true, but I don't know that their passing or not passing of the test has anything to do with whether or not Joseph is going to forgive them. I, th- I think the tests have have more to do um with whether or not Joseph is going to trust them. If they had failed those tests, would he continue to hold their sin against them? I, I don't know. But I think this is more about, will he trust them to act rightly in Egypt? If that's not the root then, then what's the explanation for Joseph's ability to forgive his brothers? And more personally, than simply understanding the root of Joseph's ability to forgive, how can I learn to forgive like that? How can I learn to be like Joseph? Because forgiveness is a part of of everyday life. And it's part of everyday life because we are sinned against every day. But simply because something is part of everyday life doesn't make it easy to deal with, right? I mean, we all have to get out of bed in the morning. Every morning. That doesn't necessarily make it easy to get out of bed when the alarm rings. And forgiveness is difficult. And it's constant in our lives. It could be something impersonal. Someone cuts you off in traffic. Someone treats you wrongly at the store or at work. It, it could be within your home. Your children sin against you. Your parents sin against you. Your spouse sins against you. And maybe even deeper than just this past week or, or even the coming weeks. Maybe there's past sin that was done against you. Like Joseph's brothers 20 years ago that has been committed against you, and you hold on to those hurts, and you don't know how to forgive. How can we be people who forgive like Joseph? How can we do that? How can we forgive others on a daily basis? How do we deal with the deep hurt from our past? I want to give you an answer that I think is in this text. I don't think it's the only answer, but I think it's a key part to understanding how we can forgive like this. And here's how I want to say it, just the big idea. Trust in God's complete sovereignty is foundational to true forgiveness. Trust in God's complete sovereignty. Sovereignty meaning his all-powerful control of everything, that he controls all that happens in the world. Trust in God's complete sovereignty is foundational to true forgiveness. I say foundational because I don't think it's the only thing that you need to forgive others, but it is a, a solid foundation to truly forgive others. So when we struggle to forgive others and to be reconciled to others, whether in a moment or over the course of years, it's rooted in part in our understanding of God's hand orchestrating, ordaining, controlling all that is happening in this world. And the more we understand and the more we believe that God is in control of all things, the more we will be able to forgive others when they sin against us. Let's think about that from the passage, okay? So as we think about forgiveness and reconciliation and sovereignty, just as we look at this, there's so much emotion packed into this moment, isn't there? We're told in verse 1 that there comes a point where where Joseph can control himself no longer. I'm not sure how long all of the events from chapter 42 through 44 took, but, but Joseph's been keeping up this act for some time about not revealing himself to his brothers, even though he wanted to. But I don't think it's just that. I think he's holding back to the emotions of the past 22 years 
And he finally, he just can't do that anymore. I'm sure he had wept when he's thrown in the pit in Dothan. He wept on the way to Egypt. He wept probably when he was in prison. And then even as he rose to power, when he held his own son in his arms, I'm sure he wept. And it was for joy, but also just to see that and to remember his own father. And all the years that that he had not been with his father. And surely he grieved that. He had grieved the pain in his life, but probably not fully. And now he tells everyone to leave so that he can be alone with his brothers. And once he he's there in the room with just his brothers to see, he weeps. Verse 2 tells us he wept so loud that the sound travels through the door. So all Egypt hears and Pharaoh himself hears Joseph weeping. He loses all sense of shame and he just emotionally melts before his brothers. When you read the Joseph narrative, it's it's tempting to think that Joseph is sort of superhuman. You know, he looks like this guy that just has it all together. And that the reason he can do what he did is because he's different than us. But when we see him weep like this, we, we see that he felt the pain of those 22 years. He felt it deeply. And it may be here that he finally allows himself to, to grieve everything that happened to him. Sometimes when you're going through difficulty like that, there's, there's not an opportunity to deal with that pain. Because you just have to get through every single day. And in this moment, he finally is able to grieve for all that has happened to him. And I think, too, he's, he's, he's considering that, that he is going to forgive his brothers. He's going to release the right to hold the sin over his brothers. And that's an emotional thing for him. And the entire scene reveals that Joseph was a man like us. And it reminds us that tears and anguish and, and pain, that these things are not wrong. They don't show a lack of faith or a lack of trust in God. Surely they can, but they don't have to. And as we, we have and as we will see, Joseph deeply trusted God. But Joseph was also deeply hurt in his life. And this emotion, it's not weakness in his character. It's not weakness of faith. I mean, just think about Joseph. Few people show as much physical and mental toughness as Joseph to go through what he did. Or spiritual toughness and faith that he had. From the pit to the palace and everywhere in between, Joseph trusts God. His weeping is not weakness. And he reminds us that to feel deep pain, to feel emotion, is just to be human. Can't be ruled by our emotions, but it's also equally harmful to just be numb to all of our emotions. As we consider this pain in, in light of the forgiveness, we start to to see that to forgive others doesn't require us to deny the pain that they have caused us. I think that's important to remember. To forgive others doesn't mean that you have to deny the pain that they have caused you. There's a reality to the pain that sin the sin of others causes in our lives, and we don't have to say. Well, it's no big deal. It is a big deal, and it hurts. And Joseph was hurt. So God doesn't call us to deny the difficulty of life. Jesus himself, God himself, wept. And he knew the pain that life caused, and he knew the pain that others could cause. And that makes him a high priest who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, who we can go to and he understands when we cry and when we are in pain. He has felt forsaken by God. He has felt forsaken by others. He has wept. He doesn't see our tears and say, oh, they don't trust me enough. Because he has walked pain. He has shed tears. And he's done it all while fully trusting the Father. 
I'm not sure how long Joseph wept, but I imagine that his brothers are thoroughly confused at this point. Imagine the roller coaster of emotions for them. They were brought in for this great feast. They leave in high spirits. Their brother Joseph, or their brother Benjamin is accused of this. They go back to Egypt. They think they're all going to be enslaved. And now this ruler in Egypt throws everyone out and just totally falls apart in front of them. And in verse 3, after he gets control of himself, he just says, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? You might be tempted to read that and, and think that Joseph revealing himself would be sort of comforting for them. But if, if these brothers are afraid of some nameless ruler in Egypt who thinks that they're spies, then they're going to be terrified of a ruler in Egypt who is actually the brother that they sold into slavery. I mean, Joseph has power over them, and he has every reason in the world to harm them and to punish them. They are not comforted. They are completely dismayed at his presence. It reminds me of Isaiah 6, where Isaiah stands before God's holy presence. And what does it say about him? It says he was undone. I think that's the right word for what's going on with these guys. They are undone. They are laid bare. They have no idea how to respond. Joseph is overwhelmed with emotion, and he has to speak. These brothers are overwhelmed with emotion, and they are completely speechless. They don't know what to say. Judging by the fact that Joseph says, come near to me, please, they had either backed away at Joseph's revelation or they were already some distance and Joseph says, come, come near. It's probably in part to get a better look at him. No, come close to me. Look, look at my face. See who I am. But it's also this tender request. It's a, it's a call to relationship. It's a call to friendship. You remember when they ate the meal, Joseph was separate from them. And now he's saying, no, come near to me. I'm your brother, he repeats. I'm your brother, Joseph. And then he clarifies, you remember the one you sold into Egypt? <laughs> Of course they remembered that. How could they ever forget that? That's all they could think about. I wonder again if, you know, when Joseph emotionally broke and wept, did they know at that point? Did they hear those cries and remember how he had cried in that pit and asked for help? But then Joseph says to these speechless brothers, these brothers who had sold him into slavery, what does he say? What does he say? He says in verse 5, And now do not be distressed. Or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Don't be distressed. And why not? Why, why should they not be distressed? I mean, I would be distressed. Here's the brother they had heinously wronged. He's in the ultimate place of power over them. Their lives are in his, in his hands. And he says, don't be distressed. Don't, don't be scared. <laughs> and don't be angry at yourselves because of, of what you did. And why? It says there, verse 5, don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for... God sent me. God sent me. He says three times in four verses, God sent me, God sent me, God sent me. You see it there in in verse 5, God sent me before you to preserve life. Then again in verse 7, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. And then in verse 8, he kind of flips it. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. That's important. That's the key here. God sent me here. But of course his brothers did send him there, didn't they? I mean, they're responsible for this. They did everything on that day where they sold him into slavery. But Joseph, Joseph sees something deeper. He sees God's hand not simply allowing this to happen. I think it's stronger than that. But that God ordained it. And God even caused it to happen. 
This idea of sovereignty is then key to understanding how Joseph can forgive his brothers and how his brothers can, can move beyond the way that they had sinned against their brother. And it's the key for us to know how to forgive others and also how we can live in light of our sin and the pain that we have caused others, but no forgiveness and, and move past it, past the sin that we have committed. God's sovereignty is foundational to both sides of forgiveness, how we extend forgiveness and how we receive forgiveness. So God's sovereignty, this is fairly easy to understand, isn't it? God's all-powerful control over everything that happens in our lives and in the world. That's an easy concept in theory to understand. But, but then you start to press it a little bit. It's easy in positive situations, okay? So you drive down the road five minutes later than you had planned, and you come upon a car accident that happened five minutes beforehand. And the result in your heart is that you praise God's sovereignty. You thank God that you couldn't find your car keys because he orchestrated those events to spare you. He hid those keys to preserve your life. But what about when you know right where your keys are and you're in the car accident? When the fact that you didn't misplace your keys means that you are in the wreck. Is God sovereign there? I hope you see that he is, because that gives us comfort. And certainly God's sovereignty should bring comfort there. Let's take it a step further. What about when that accident is caused by a drunk driver and it results in the death of someone that, that you love? Is God sovereign over that? Was he in control of that situation? Did God ordain in some way that that driver of that car drink too much and then make the foolish decision to get behind the wheel and drive? Was it God's plan that the drunk driver hit your car and that your loved one died? Sovereignty is not so easy, is it? Is God in control of everything? Because that's what Joseph is saying here. Realize what he's saying. He says, God sent me here. So Joseph looks back at all the evil that was done to him. He looks back at Dothan when they threw him into the pit. He looks back at the fact that Reuben wanted to save him. Reuben wanted to spare his life. And Reuben was going to pull him out and take him home. But Reuben wasn't there when Judah said, let's sell him. And Reuben wasn't there when this caravan in God's sovereignty came by. Reuben wasn't there when they sold Joseph into slavery. And he doesn't look at all that and say, I can't believe what you guys did. What does he say? God did it. God sent me here. This was not an accident. This was not a random event. It wasn't under his brother's control. Rather, God used them to send him to Egypt so that he could save many people, including his own family. Joseph looks at this terrible situation and he finds God's hand. And in light of that, he forgives his brothers. And he calls them to come near to him. Trust in God's complete sovereignty is foundational to true forgiveness and reconciliation. Because that, that kind of faith allows us to see events in general and even the evil of others specifically as under God's sovereign hand. And knowing that, that God is in control of that, allows us to forgive others. Knowing that he is in control is a comfort. Often when evil comes into our lives, we want to excuse God. We want to say he has nothing to do with that. Or we want to accuse God that he did it. But there's some sort of amazing middle ground here that, that's hard to wrap our minds around. He is not the author of evil, nor does he cause sin, nor does he sin himself. 
But there are these bold statements in Scripture. Consider these verses. Lamentations 3, 37 through 38 says this. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? What we read for our call to worship from Isaiah 45, 5 to 7. I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. So no one else is in control. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Tough. And Joseph saw the result of what happened. He saw how the sin done to him brought salvation. But even if we don't see that, even if the evil done to us, we never know why it happened or if any good came out of it. We can trust God. We can trust his sovereignty. We can look at all of life, including the way that people sin against us and hurt us, and say boldly, God ordained this. I like that word. I think that's the right word to use. I struggle to find the the right word. Cause, I think that's true, but it's a tough one to say. But to say he ordained it, he set it in place, and he does it without sinning, and he does it in a way that we are still responsible, but he ordains it. He is in control. He is sovereign over it. Now, does God's sovereignty in that situation, does that excuse Joseph's brothers? Absolutely not. No way. They are responsible for what they did. And what they did was evil. So the encouragement is not do whatever you want because it's all going to sort of work out in the end. You can sin and God will turn it for good. That's that whole should we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. The brothers, remember, when Joseph told them the dream about how they were all going to bow down to him, they heard God's plan. They knew that was God's plan. And they said, we don't want anything to do with that. And so they tried to kill it by killing Joseph. And God used their evil actions to bring about his plan. But in that, they missed all the blessings that would have been theirs if they had submitted to God's ways. I think you hear that. What's Joseph's emphasis after he reveals himself? It's all about his dad. He just keeps saying, is my father still alive? Go tell my dad what happened. you got to bring dad here. I mean, there's this depth of feeling where he has missed this relationship. He's lost it for 20 years. And his brothers had robbed Jacob and they had robbed Joseph of that relationship and they'd robbed themselves of family harmony. Their sin was not without consequence. It had terrible consequences. They brought pain into their family and into others' lives where there could have been peace and joy. These are big ideas, right? I mean, this is like high-level stuff. So let me try to simplify it. And, and give you a, a couple of just real hopefully applicational points, okay? So we've said this, trust in God's complete sovereignty. We try to flesh out, what does that mean, complete sovereignty, okay? is foundational to true forgiveness and reconciliation. So trust allows us to forgive those who sin against us, and it allows us to move forward after we have sinned against others. So what's that going to look like this week in your life, okay? Two thoughts as we try to make this practical. First, As we seek to forgive others, we must recognize sin's scars and rest in God's sovereignty. So maybe that's an easy way to say it. Recognize sin's scars, rest in God's sovereignty. 
and we're thinking about when others sin against us, we recognize the scars that sin causes, but we also rest in God's sovereignty. Again, I don't think the Joseph narrative calls us to look past or to minimize the pain that sin causes in our lives, the evil that it causes in this world. We can look at situations when we were hurt by others, when we've hurt others. We can, we can be honest about the pain and the scars that that's the sins of others have caused in our lives. We can look at evils in this world. We can look at the pain of, of racism or terrorism or classism. And, and these all cause pain. There are people who cause pain. There are systems that cause pain. There are systematic issues in our world that, that cause pain. And we can consider all of these things and we can weep for the hurt that they cause. We can see the scars. Don't, don't say it's God's sovereignty isn't meant to, for you to say, well, he's in control, so it doesn't hurt. No, it does hurt. It's painful. But it's out of, out of that, or even in the midst of it, as we see the scars, we, we can hold on to the, to the difficult but comforting truth that God is sovereign, even over that. The, these are sinful things, but they're not accidental. They're not pointless. They can be used for our good and for the good of others. That's not easy, but it helps. I was trying to apply this yesterday, just in, cir- in different circumstances, but it, it helps to acknowledge the pain, but then also to consider how God can use the sin of another against me for good in my life and in the lives of, of others. How he is shaping me, how he's teaching me, how he's going to grow me, even as others sin against me. It hurts, but God is sovereign and he's going to do something with that. People are going to sin against you, and as we do that, we can recognize sin scars, and rest in God's sovereignty. We can seek to forgive those who have hurt us, and we can think through how we will respond to the sins of others that will come against us this week. It's going to happen. But we're also going to sin against other people, right? We are Joseph, and we are Joseph's brothers. So we're going to hurt people, sometimes strangers, sometimes the person closest to us, sometimes on purpose, sometimes on accident. Sometimes we're just caught up and some forces that seem out of our control, we don't even recognize them and we're causing pain to other people. But as we consider our own sin, we see that this, so we said we recognize sin scars and rest in God's sovereignty. Here's, as, as we think about, as we sin against others, we must take sin seriously and trust God's sovereignty. We must take sin seriously and trust God's sovereignty. So again, The sovereignty of God over all things is not an excuse for sin. As we grieve over the evil done to us, we need to grieve and repent for the evil that we have done to others. And Joseph's brothers, I think, had done that. They they seem to be truly repentant, but how are they going to move on? He says, don't be angry at yourselves. Do you ever get angry at yourself for the way that you've sinned against others? I sure do. If you don't, that's that's a scary thing probably. How do, how do we move on when we see the way that our sin has hurt others? How do we deal with the the fate with the fact that our, that our actions are the cause of scars in other people's lives that we have hurt others? At least one answer is to trust in God's sovereignty. To know that even my own sin is not outside of his plan that that he can turn my evil for good. He can use my failure and turn it for his glory, for the good of others, and even for my good. That's that's hard. 
it's not just hard to understand conceptually. That's that's one struggle. But it's just hard to move past our failures, I think. I struggle with that. I am a, a um, consistent over-apologizer. I can apologize once. That's not enough. I need to continue to say that I'm sorry so that you really know how sorry I am. And that's sort of my way of paying penance, you know. I can't move on. So there's hope here. Hope that God is somehow going to use my failures for good. As a father of five, that's that's one of the things I struggle with most is that my sin against my children, it feels irreparable. If I lose my temper, if I'm impatient, if I'm neglecting of them, I feel like there's there's like I, I've done something. I've I've broken them in some way. You know, you read all these studies about how their their brains are formed within the first three years of life, and anything that happens in those three years, oh great, what did I just do? You know, and we feel that 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 pressure. But I can trust God's sovereignty. I, it's not an excuse for my sin. I take my sin seriously, but I can I can also recognize that that my impatience. And, and that my anger and all of these things, they are wrong. And when I repent of them, I can, I can step back and trust, okay, God is sovereign over this. And he can turn this. He can use it. Even though I totally messed up here, he's going to bring some good out of this. Is my sin wrong? Yes. Every single time. But is there some way that God can transform even my sin for good? I have to believe that there is. And is that an excuse for me to take sin lightly? No. I take sin very seriously, but I trust God's sovereignty when I do. Just a word for some of you, these truths may be harder than than others because life has been harder for you than for others. You may not have experienced the pain that Joseph faced, but you've experienced something like it. And you've been hurt deeply by people in the past. And my prayer is that God, and it's it's something only God can do, would allow you to to grieve for that hurt, to to see the scar and recognize it for what it is, but that he would also supernaturally give you eyes to see what he has done through it, to see how he has turned it for good. On the flip side, maybe you have hurt someone very deeply. I mean, you hurt someone very deeply. And I pray that you would be able to recognize your sin and take it seriously and repent, but also that you would trust that God was sovereign over that. It's not an excuse for your sin. He didn't cause you to sin. He didn't make you sin. But also, He was in control. He knew it was happening. In both of those situations, to deal with those deep hurts, it's going to be a miracle of God's grace. But He can do that. God is sovereign. He, over all of life. And he's sovereign in a way that doesn't minimize the pain that we feel or the responsibility that we have for our sin. But his sovereignty forms this key to what forgiveness is and how we can forgive others. It allows us to look at all of life and know God is in, in control of all of these things. And if that's the case, I can forgive others because God is in control. And I can receive forgiveness and I can move forward in my life because he's in control even of the, the foolish things that I have done. Trust in God's complete sovereignty is foundational to true forgiveness and reconciliation. And it's not just Joseph who teaches us this. Let's go to Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus, our Savior, shows us these things 
at the core of what he has done in purchasing our salvation. Jesus weeps like Joseph. He weeps at what the hands of men do to him. He feels literal pain, pain that results in literal scars on his body. But he submits himself to the plan of God and trusts that God is in control. He weeps in the garden. And what does he pray? Not my will, but yours be done. And what is the will of the Father? The sovereign plan of the Father is that Jesus, the perfect Son of God, be killed by sinners. That's God's plan that he ordained. And so Jesus hangs on the cross, and he can say, as it were, just like Joseph, he can say to everyone there, and he can say to to you and me, he can say, you didn't send me here. God sent me here. God sent me here to preserve life and to save life, including yours. But what about all those people that sinned against him? They did send him there, didn't they? They did crucify him. And, and Peter says that on the day of Pentecost as he preaches the first sermon. He says it, and he says it just like Joseph would. This is what he says in Acts 2, 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, sovereignty, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Responsibility. You did it. There is a way for God to be sovereign and for us to be responsible. Peter says Jesus' death was part of God's sovereign plan, but he also says that these guys did it. They were responsible. I called Walmart this morning because I had called them last night to order 150 pieces of chicken. And you know what they told me? We don't have your order and we can't make them. (laughs) And so I called Kroger. (laughs) Was God sovereign over that? Yes. Will I ever order chicken from Walmart again? No, because they are responsible for it. God is sovereign even over these kind of things that happen. He's sovereign over all of it, but we are responsible. And and Peter preaches that message. He says, you guys did it. God was in control, but you guys did it, and they are cut to the heart, and they take their sins seriously. But then you know what they do? They trust God's sovereignty, that even though they, people who had literally been there when Jesus was crucified, even they could know forgiveness. Why? Because in God's plan, It was his plan that that they be there and that they crucify him. That was his plan. And we're in that crowd too. Our sins are cast on Jesus. Our sins are why he is crucified. And he has every right, just like Joseph, he has every right in the world to stand and to punish us for our sin. When we come to him repentance and faith, he could punish us. But when we come to him, you know what he does? He reveals himself to us. He says, he, he, he holds out these, these nail-scarred hands and he says, I am Jesus. And the Father sent me here to save you. I am Jesus. Come near and, and be my brother. Be part of the family of God through forgiveness. And everyone who would come near to Jesus will know the forgiveness of sins. We can come just like Joseph's brothers who were a mess and who had sinned terribly. But we can come because God is sovereign and he has made this plan of salvation by sending his only son. 
to take the sins of the world on himself, to die for our sins and to rise again to give us new life. And we can know the forgiveness of sins. Why? Because God is sovereign and God has sent us a Savior in Jesus. Let's take a moment of silence and let's reflect on on the beauty of the gospel and on forgiveness. And then I will close this in prayer. Father, we confess this morning that we are unable to completely wrap our minds around your sovereignty. We believe it and we trust it and we are thankful for it, but we cannot fully understand it. And yet, Lord, we, as, as difficult as it is, the, the gospel is so simple that if we would confess our sins, you are faithful and just and you will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, help us to to live in light of your sovereignty, to be able to forgive others, and to be able to receive forgiveness. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who does not know the forgiveness that is in Christ, has never experienced that, Lord, never known the joy of having you say, come near to me, that they would know that this morning, Lord. Pray it in Christ's name. Amen.